these are really hard questions, right? I mean, these are tragic choices. This is a, a health system where people want to save everybody, and they're likely to be in a position very soon where they can't save everybody. Bioethicists, doctors, lawyers, and state officials all are busy developing triage guidelines in response to the coronavirus to figure out who should get care before someone else. It's April 14th. Today, from the Annenberg Studio at the University of Pennsylvania, the ethical choices, the evidence, and the dangers that come when you design plans to ration care. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. In 2014, a group of physicians published Triage, Care of the Critically Ill and Injured During Pandemics and Disasters. The paper drew inspiration from the hard lessons of 9-11. A level one trauma center, the closest to the World Trade Center. Hurricane Katrina, SARS. The number of victims expected to triple within weeks. And the H1N1 pandemic. Few people paid much attention. But for the larger medical emergency planning community, this work represented global experts scouring the literature and reaching consensus on 11 principles for rationing access to ICU beds and ventilators. My name is Doug White uh, at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And basically, I'm a physician who works in intensive care units focused on ethical issues in intensive care units. Doug was one of 96 experts consulted by the authors who undertook the project on behalf of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Society called the American College of Chest Physicians, or CHEST. This framework is considered the gold standard by many in emergency medicine and has influenced policies adopted by states and hospitals. One big idea? Each hospital should put decision-making in the hands of a small group of senior doctors and nurses with emergency and critical care expertise to implement the guidelines, something called a triage team. There's pretty broad agreement across every single triage document that I've seen that it should not be the bedside doctors making the decisions. And the reason for this is both to increase the objectivity of the decisions and make sure that the guidelines are followed, but also, frankly, to minimize the distress that treating physicians may feel, understandably, when they're trying to advocate for the well-being of their individual patient. Have we seen these sorts of triage teams be deployed in the field, whether in the United States or elsewhere around the world? And how, is there evidence that they work? I'm not aware that this model has actually been head-to-head compared with having bedside doctors make these decisions. But there is a relatively rich and uh, chilling body of evidence about what happens when you leave allocation decisions to bedside doctors. For example, there have been a few studies about what happens in hospitals when an ICU has to close for staffing reasons and the hospital is suddenly left with you know, 20% of the ICU beds that they normally have. It becomes fairly tribal very quickly in the sense that uh, you know, individual doctors who are powerful are uh, able to get their patients into ICUs in ways that other doctors in that hospital who are not quite as powerful can't. The paper endorsed another common provision in triage frameworks. When confronted with the reality that you can't save everyone, you shift to trying to save as many as you can. If we somehow tried to, for example, just treat patients as they came in on a first-come, first-served basis, the sort of sobering reality is that many more lives would be lost than if we took a 
you know, a considered, thoughtful way for how to allocate the scarce resources. And ex explain that. Why would many more lives be lost if you took a first-come, first-serve approach? For example, let's say that there were lots of patients coming into the emergency department with respiratory failure. And the first two people that you happen to see just happened to have a pretty poor prognosis. But what if the next three had a much better prognosis? Then we'd be in a situation where by not incorporating some considerations of likelihood of benefit, those later three would not get access. The whole point of switching away from first come first serve is to make sure scarce resources are not used on people who will likely die in short order. To accomplish that, the 2014 CHESS guidelines suggest weeding out certain classes of patients. The policy excludes people doctors estimate have less than a year to live, like patients with chronic heart disease and cancer that has spread. Doug says these exclusions, though, are so broad that triage teams run the risk of making blanket judgments and treating people unfairly. You know, there are, there are many people who look at those exclusion criteria and say not only are they ethically problematic, but they almost certainly run afoul of U.S. discrimination laws. Imagine that someone with heart failure had a drug overdose and came in and needed a ventilator for eight hours as the drug gets out of their system. That patient has an excellent chance of walking out of the hospital the next day. But according to the frameworks that use these exclusion criteria, that patient would not be given an ICU bed or a ventilator. Ultimately, Doug just thought a less blunt tool was needed. So several years back, he teamed up with a few colleagues to design a framework where everybody gets to be in line, no exclusions. A scoring system still does order people within that line, but it doesn't bar anyone from being in it. What's important about this approach is that if all of the sudden a bunch of ICU beds or ventilators come online that weren't there, there are no people who are sitting there excluded and not being considered. Instead, all those resources immediately go to the people who are in the queue but had a lower priority. Doug had another problem with the CHESS guidelines. Once you've identified everyone that will likely survive more than a year, how do you decide who to put at the front of the line, the 55-year-old or the 20-year-old? The 2014 CHESS protocol remains silent on that question. Doug worries that leaves the door open for states or hospitals to rely on criteria prone to error and bias, like projecting out long-term life expectancy or making quality-of-life judgments. So he added a guardrail to his guidelines and capped a triage team's ability to project life expectancy at just five years. Imagine you're a patient with a disability that does, to some degree, limit your life expectancy. If we're really, truly pursuing a maximizing approach, we would consider that in the framework and give it to the person without the disability. But that ignores that there are other ethically relevant considerations than simply maximizing life years. And so we've taken a, an approach that doesn't consider the long-term life expectancy. It considers the near-term chances of living. Under Doug's guidelines, people with less than five years to live are given priority to an ICU bed and ventilator over people with less than one year to live. This kind of rationing of scarce resources already happens in medicine. Doug, a pulmonologist by training, borrows this idea from lung transplants where candidates deemed unlikely to live very long after receiving a lung go to the back of the line. My whole professional life has been 
at least in part caught up with what do we do with the sort of inevitability that we won't always have enough for everyone. And we need to do that in ways that are both fair and do not throw such a wedge in society that you, you end up at the end of the experience with a society that's far more divided than when it started. In the middle of the coronavirus crisis, two triage camps have emerged. Some states and many hospitals incorporate exclusions and in some cases also use long-term life expectancy projections and even quality of life judgments. The other camp includes everybody and looks at near-term life expectancy in an attempt to level the playing field between people with disabilities and those without. Doug says Pennsylvania, Colorado, and Massachusetts have adopted policies based on his guidelines, and he's spoken with hundreds of interested hospitals in the last few weeks. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. As hospitals and states have scrambled to activate their rationing plans, disability rights advocates have raised alarms that guidelines from both camps, the ones modeled after the 2014 chess paper and Doug White's, violate people's civil rights. They point out that many policies around the country are baking in bias, intentional or not, about the quality of someone's life. Alabama, with one of the most overt examples, stated that people with, quote, severe mental retardation may be poor candidates for ventilator support. Sam Bagenstas is a law professor at the University of Michigan. What's going on in these cases is not a concern that the treatment won't actually save their lives, but instead... The concern is that they won't live as long or live as high-quality lives in the years following the treatment. Within the last three weeks, Sam and other advocates have filed complaints against medical rationing plans in six states, Washington, Tennessee, Alabama, Utah, Pennsylvania, and Kansas. Federal health officials closed the complaint against Alabama last week after the state had removed all exclusions from its crisis guidelines. I asked Sam what he thought of Doug White's policy, whether looking at someone's near-term prognosis, five years of life, seemed to be reasonable. Once we start talking about points based on survivability of five years, you know, the number of disabled people or family members of disabled people who have told the story about how their doctor said their disabling condition would kill them within three years, and it turned out they're still here 20 years later, makes me really worried about that as a basis at all for distinguishing among patients when we're talking about life-saving treatment. Sam and Doug agree, you should provide ration care in a crisis only to those people doctors believe can make it out of the hospital alive. The disagreement comes in how long is long enough after discharge. Sam argues the safest standard is six months, the same time frame doctors use to determine hospice eligibility. 
But once we get to a longer term than that, we really are in the realm where disability-based biases about life expectancy are going to be at issue. And, and we really want to make sure we're making individualized decisions and not decisions based on what underlying diagnosis someone has. A six-month survivability standard certainly raises questions like whether it's reasonable to treat a person who likely has six months left to live the same as someone with two, three, or 30 years. But here are two reasons why it may be fair to draw up the most generous guidelines. One, no triage protocol out there has been tested in a pandemic, so we have little data. Two, Sam says we need to remember why the United States is facing this crisis in the first place. We're here in this situation of scarcity, not because of nature, but because of a bunch of human decisions, right? A bunch of human decisions not to invest in surge capacity for ventilators. So to say to disabled people today that because of your disability, we're, we're sorry, you just have to bear the brunt of our scarcity. When the scarcity was a result of a decision that they were excluded from, largely, we can fully sympathize with the people who are on the front lines making choices about how to allocate scarce treatments right now. But when we're thinking about the rules that govern our society, we have to think about that whole picture. This week, Chest updated their 2014 guidelines and made a major change. The authors dropped all exclusions. We have a bank of knowledge that we did not have back in 2014. Not to say we were ignorant and we didn't know how to manage our patients, but we've just learned so much over six years. Marie Baldessari, one of the authors, is an ICU physician at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Marie says thanks to medical advancements, people who would have died coming to the ICU in the past are now surviving. She says that's just one of the reasons for the new policy. We are living in a very complicated, difficult time. I think it's just become more in the forefront now that just excluding patients based on the fact that he has heart failure or kidney failure or that he's an HIV patient it is unfair. It's unclear whether the update will persuade state officials and hospital leaders to abandon exclusions. But at the very least, the new guidelines reflect a change in thinking. On a personal level, Marie is glad Chest has made the change. She's also just glad that doctors and nurses in the U.S. even have guidelines. A decade ago in Haiti, she led a medical team there after an earthquake killed and injured hundreds of thousands of people. But for now, Haiti is battling the aftermath of a devastating natural disaster. And for the first time in my life, I had to triage. The injured are taken to hospital in a country which simply doesn't have the infrastructure to cope. Marie found herself making life and death decisions based on her best clinical judgment. We didn't have an electronic medical record. We didn't have a sophisticated scoring systems. It was sort of based on what did I think their life expectancy was? What was his age or her age? In Haiti, I had to make those decisions every day. Who would get dialysis? Who would be put on a ventilator? We had no other choice but to do it this way because there was such mass chaos. You're bringing back some painful memories here. Uh, memories that I've tried to sort of store away in those little recesses of your mind. <sighs> After Marie left Haiti, 
she felt the weight of the decisions she'd made. Having to play that role, having that much responsibility, it sounds like it has haunted you. Um, I I, I hope it does continue to haunt me. I I think that that's never something I want to throw away. I want to remember that. I want to remember how terrible that experience was because we can do better now. In normal times, it's easy to say everyone's life is equally valuable. As we face the chance hospitals will run out of ICU beds and ventilators and rationing becomes less theoretical, we're forced to explicitly value one person's life over another. There's no criteria, no guideline that can soften that harsh reality. And it's a tough one to grasp. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Most of us have spent the last several weeks staying inside, practicing social distancing. Not everyone has been following the rules, and as weather warms up, more people could be tempted. With data showing that social distancing works to limit the spread of COVID-19, what does the evidence say is the best way to convince people to take it seriously? Next time on Tradeoffs. You may have heard we're conducting an audience survey to learn a bit more about who you are and what you'd like to hear from us. You'll be helping us out a lot if you take a few minutes to fill out the survey we've assembled. You can find a link in the show notes or go to tradeoffs.org slash survey. If you found today's episode helpful or interesting, leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. You can keep in touch with us between episodes by following us on Twitter at tradeoffspod. Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Vicki Stern, sound designer Andrew Perella, and editor Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this week from Only Meath, Sergei Karamisanov, Purple Planet, Unheard Music Concepts, Blue Dot Sessions, and Bacon. Special thanks to Dan Hanfling, Matthew Winia, Julia Lynch, Michael Christian, Ari Neiman, Shira Wachschlag, Jennifer Mathis, and the Tradeoff Advisory Board. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the California Healthcare Foundation, Arnold Ventures, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Additional support from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs staff, advisors, or funders. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details.